Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really excited about sharing with you. In this second backcountry canoe tripping episode, I'm going to focus on what it was actually like going on a backcountry canoe trip way back when. As mentioned previously, much of the content comes from three trips. The first was a trip that James Dixon led in the mid-1800s in the Canoe Lake area and up to Burnt Root. The second, a 1903 trip by Ernest Machado, his brother Jose, and brother-in-law Alfred Whitman, and three park rangers. They went from Canoe Lake to Big Trout and from there to Apiango and south to Victoria Lake. The third is a fishing trip that John Robbins and friend Tom took on the northeast side of the park in the early 1940s, starting at Radiant Lake. Other references that might be of interest include my two books, Canoe Tripping Then and Now, which was published in 2012, Treasuring Algonquin, Sharing Scenes from 100 Years of Leaseholding that was published in 2006, as well as a few bits from Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other. So, on that note, with preambles and reference housekeeping completed, let's head off on a virtual canoe trip back through time. Pick your season, June, August, September. Sit back and enjoy the ride and let your imagination run wild. So what did the landscape actually look like as those early adventurers headed into the bush? Dixon and his party put in at Dwight, having previously purchased birch bark canoes and most of their supplies in Bracebridge and Baysville. From there, the party headed up the Oxtong River. In those days, there was a tremendous amount of floodwood and log jams in the river itself, an overhang in the form of projecting trees and branches. The bowmen had to be ever vigilant against hidden sticks that could pierce the hull of the canoe or obstacles that could cause them to capsize. Dixon describes many times having to work their way not just around the bends in the river, but also deal with rapids, lifts around logs blocking the path forward, and sometimes deadfall that they had to hack their way through with the axe. The shorelines of tea, smoke, and canoe in 1885 would have been fringed with cedar and balsam, with the denser hardwood and hemlock forest covering the hills. The occasional cluster of white pine would have been the leftovers that were too small to cut when the original white pine loggers came through the area in the 1830s and in the 1850s. The creek to Smoke Lake was essentially a small brook, and the river north to Canoe Lake to Bonita Lake was only about 40 feet or 14 meters wide. All that changed in 1893 when the Gilmore Lumber Company got the timber rights to the area around Canoe Lake. They built a huge depot on Tea Lake and proceeded to build dams at the south end of Tea and Smoke Lakes and at the north end of Canoe Lake at what is now called the Joe Lake Portage. These dams raised the water level by some three feet, which in turn killed all of the trees along the shoreline of the three lakes. In Mary Garland's book, Mowat, Little Town of Big Dreams, there's a really interesting map that shows approximately what the shoreline of Canoe Lake looked like at the north end in 1897. Both Potter Creek and Joe Creek were these small winding streams, which were, according to Dixon, full of obstructions that delayed considerably their way forward. The strait between Big Joe and Little Joe Lakes was in 1885 a shallow, torturous creek, and the piles of driftwood at the outlet of Burnt Island and those to the north made finding the portages relatively easy. 
The other big difference that both Dixon and the Machado Party encountered everywhere were the remains of various logging operations. These included lumber camps with shanties and tote roads on the way into Burnt Island Lake on the east side of Big Trout, at the head of the Bog Creek that went into Merchant Lake, on the shores of Merchant Lake itself and Annie Bay at the south end of Apiango. There was also a huge log chute along the end of the otter slides where it spills into Big Trout, and a few dams used by the loggers during the Spring River drives were still in existence. There were also a few ranger shelter huts on Green Lake, now called Happy Isle, and at the Alpiongo Narrows that later became part of the 30-plus shelter huts that at one time existed across the park and were used by traveling park rangers. Also along Otterside Creek and the route into Merchant were huge beaver dams. One picture taken in 1903 suggests that the dam was nearly three meters high. The only thing close to that size I've ever seen was a dam along the north end of Potter Creek in 2016 and another that still exists today on the Centennial Ridge hiking trail. Today, all portages in Algonquin Park are marked at the beginning and the end with signs that are black writing on a bright yellow background. This was not always the case. The first Algonquin Canoe Routes map didn't appear until 1901. The first one was drawn by Dr. William Bell, who had taken out a lease on Cache Lake. There, he would treat patients with the then-popular folk wisdom that breathing cold, fresh air with the scent of balsams, hemlocks, and pine trees were good for chest ailments. Bell must have had an interest in cartography, as the then-park superintendent, George Bartlett, asked Bell if he would join the park staff for a time to complete the map. Bartlett wanted to attract recreational visitors to the park, so providing a means of enabling them to know where they were going was seen as a good thing. Now, many were existing trails that had been determined to be the easiest means to traverse between one lake or another, and around rapids and waterfalls, and had long been known to indigenous people, trappers, and surveyors. By the 1940s, portage signs included a note admonishing campers as to the danger of fire. This was because backcountry canoe tippers and anglers were often the cause of forest fires. But according to Robbins, the signs must be frequently replaced because if the rangers are to be believed, and of course all rangers are, bears had a tendency to go berserk at the sight of the signs and would tear them down if they could. I guess due to the number of folks getting lost at various times, portage signs now include both the name of the lake that one is leaving and the name of the lake to which the portage goes, and an indication of the specific portage's length. Some have been rerouted over the years to avoid obstacles, and many have man-made bridges today to cross swamps and bogs and steps to deal with erosion caused by overuse. Walking along portage in the bush with a heavy pack is really different from normal walking. First, one has to slow down and take measured steps, consciously lifting one's feet to avoid small rocks and roots. The impact of the extra weight is felt across the shoulders and lower back, though tump lines helped somewhat in distributing this weight and allowed the carrier to periodically transfer the weight forward and back. Going downhill was the toughest part, as to do so effectively, one had to take very small steps and push the weight into the hips to keep stable. You also had to lean back a little, but not so much that the weight of the pack caused the carrier to topple backward. Paddles or walking sticks were often used for balance and made going over large logs, boardwalks, or split logs in the swamp a little easier. 
as Ernest Machado wrote in his diary of the portage between Big Trout and Merchant Lakes. We got mired several times, and when we finally got through, would have made fitting subjects for a pig pen. The experience of carrying packs through such a place was novel and interesting, but not easy or clean. There's a great picture of them in the bog in the YouTube video in the slide collection on my website. But the bog is no longer there, I presume because of the tearing down of the large beaver dam mentioned previously. It must have drained the area. Taking a break on a portage with a heavy pack wasn't easy then and isn't easy now, as only in the direst of situations does one ever want to put the pack down. One option, of course, is to bend over at the waist, pushing the weight of the pack higher up on one's back. Another is to rest using a paddle or a tree branch as an anchor. This approach is not exactly restful, but does help. A better method is to keep a lookout for a log or stump or rock of the correct height, where one can either lean back or sit on relatively easily. Robin's views of long portages in the incomplete anglers is especially amusing. The most disturbing aspect of long portages is the element of uncertainty as to duration. I have devised various ameliorations. My favorite is a mathematical self-hypnosis and self-deception on the trail. I do about a hundred steps in the minute, including stumblings and dodgings. Besides counting, one is fighting black flies and mosquitoes, avoiding twisted ankles on roots, easing straps off a galled neck, answering occasional remarks, looking at tree trunks, flowers, shrubs, perhaps even thinking about life or something, or recalling a snatched rhyme. But the result is that since each hundred is an independent unit, there comes a time, anywhere from three hundred to seven, where I am uniquely uncertain as to whether I am ending my four hundreds or just beginning them. As an agreeable consequence, I have more than once been startled to find that I have done about twice the number of steps my tally indicated. It is amazing, the renewal of cheer and strength such a discovery gives the lonely man on the trail. Another Robin's comment as to the challenges of the portage trail that I just love sounds like this. Finally, of course, I realized that I had been on this trail since time began, and that I should still be on it when eternity became bored with itself. I realized that time was standing still, that in some mysterious way space caught up with me, and that like poor Alice, I needed all the walking I could do to stay in the same place. I even reached the point at which illusory landmarks, false indications that we were near the end, ceased to enrage me. I never carried the canoe much during my own tripping experiences, but Robin's description of the loneliness of the trail does resonate. For rarely is a man so alone as on the trail, especially under a canoe. He is then shut off completely from his fellow. Tom and I have sat for hours by a campfire at night without a word to each other, each of us thinking our own thoughts, but with a most acute sense of companionship. Meditation is not lonely, even when it is solitary, but on the trail with a heavy load and being weary, a man is intensely alone. The exertion, the pounding of activity, the noise of one's own heavy breathing, of one's own heart beating, the implacable insistence of sweat, 
All these give something of the loneliness of severe pain and forbid the soothing attunement of the spirit to the universe which makes communion out of contemplation. In a sometimes dreadful sense, a man is lonely with his burden the trail. Once it has become burden, once the buoyancy is gone. Bernard Wickstead's experience with the challenges of portaging were pretty amusing, as he recounted his experience with Joe Lavalle. I managed to get two of the packs on my back, one balanced on the other. In trying to pick up the fishing rods, the second pack overbalanced and fell with a crash. I got it back again with some difficulty and decided to call two packs a load. They weighed over a hundred pounds between them, I should think, and one of the straps almost cut my collarbone in two before I even started. Later on, Joe and I got this portaging business down to a fine art. He took the canoe and went right through with it. I took two packs halfway, dumped them besides the track, and then returned for the rest, which I carried right through. In the meantime, Joe came back halfway and picked up the first load. In this manner, we each made one and a half loaded trips. It worked fairly well and would have been perfect if there had been some infallible way of telling just when I had reached the halfway mark. Sometimes I misjudged it so badly that I went almost the whole way with the first load, and that annoyed me because I had done more work than I needed. On one or two, I underestimated it, and that annoyed Joe because he had to do more than his share. I always knew from the map the rough length of the portage before I started, but walking down a path on which I have never set foot before, bent almost double under the load and unable to see more than a few feet ahead, makes it difficult to judge distances. I tried counting my steps, but they varied widely according to the nature of the surface, and the results were erratic. The idea of marked campsites on lakes didn't happen in Algonquin Park until the 1940s. I suspect in response to the fire danger fears that I mentioned previously. Park rangers established sites at convenient spots, often on points or sand beaches. They were outfitted with stone fireplaces, benches made out of logs to sit by the fire pit, and sometimes rough-hewn tables and even lean-tos. I remember staying at sites with many of these conveniences while tripping as a child in the early 1960s. One practice leveraged from the logging days when men spent their winters in Cambu shanties was the use of balsam branches to make a soft bed. I suspect that there are few alive who remember the joys of a balsam bed. And many of you are likely to be horrified at the destruction of balsam trees that their construction entailed. But I had the pleasure of being introduced to this sleeping luxury when I was about 10 years old on a canoe trip with Omer Stringer in the mid-1960s. Omer, along with a dozen or so brothers and sisters, had grown up on Potter Creek at the north end of Canoe Lake. Their father had come to the park in 1919 to take a job as a park ranger. Omer became associated with Camp Tamaqua on Tea Lake and had built a reputation as one of the finest canoe paddlers around. Occasionally he worked for the Ontario Safety League and one year was making a film on boating safety with my father. I had been seconded to be his paddling and camping compatriot in the film. If you've ever seen the film, yes, the kid with the mop of blonde hair in the bow of the canoe demonstrating how to paddle, how to wear a life jacket properly, and how to get in and out of a canoe and portage a pack is me. The overnight trip we made and filmed was to West Bay on Ragged Lake, 
Omer decided that I should learn the ins and outs of balsam bed making, which was a marvelous experience, both in learning how to do it, but also in experiencing the resulting quality of sleep. Next to a comfy mattress, there is nothing like sleeping on a balsam bed. It puts thermorest to shame. Not just the softness, but also the fragrance is heavenly. Unfortunately, after a day or two, the smell goes away, and by day three or four, the boughs are too dry to sleep on comfortably. But for a night or two, there's nothing like it. Absolutely wonderful. However, the best description of its construction is from Dixon as follows. Making a balsam bed begins with cutting down a balsam tree, carefully selecting one with a large top. The pin-covered limbs are broken off a short distance from the trunk of the tree. Commencing at the back of the tent, each separate limb is laid down with its top to the rear and the side that was undermost on the tree turned on top. This process is repeated till the whole surface is covered with a sufficient thickness to make a soft and even bed, care being taken to keep the broken ends next to the ground. A pole five or six inches in diameter is laid across the end of the brush at the door and kept in its place by pegs driven into the ground at each end. The whole floor now presents a soft, smooth, dark green elastic surface. A few projecting branch limbs have been left, on which one hangs powder horn, shot bag, and field glasses. Rifle and double barrel shotgun are stacked round, carefully tied to the same pole for the double purpose of protecting them from the damp and reducing the chances of an accident. Blankets are spread out and rolled back to the head till bedtime. Our heavy boots are removed and replaced by light and easy moccasin slippers. Once the campsite was selected and the tent was up, the next step usually was for the cook to organize the kitchen and get things going for dinner. Even then, camp set up and takedown had a ritualized division of labor. Robin's description is pretty amusing. As he wrote, Tom and I are the products of a school in which ritual is an anathema, but we are both excellent examples of the deep need of man for it. In the bush, we have as rigid a ritual as was ever set forth in a missal. Any necessity which breaks it leaves us with a definite discomfort, a consciousness of dislocation. Our constitution is unwritten, our code uncodified, our division of labor unspecified, but never were the limits of responsibility and of privilege more clearly recognized than in our republic. Tom's duties in addition to bringing up the two billies of water for tea and porridge, respectively, involved burrowing in bags for the milk, laying out the dishes, and mixing the klim, a dehydrated powdered milk product designed originally for the tropics. Also, he made the tea, and after cleaning the porridge billy, an abominable job which I at times magnanimously undertook, he refilled it with water for the dishwashing. Our dishwashing code, I may say, is very rigid. It must be since every dish we carry is in use at every regular meal we eat. So strict are we in this matter of immediate dishwashing that we often sacrificed five to ten precious fishing minutes to, at dusk to keep our dishes and soles spotless. I washed and Tom dried. Except for the porridge, I scoured the pots and pans. I cook, but if there is toast, Tom did the toasting. In the 1880s, there were really only three pieces of cooking equipment a tea pail, a frying pan, and the bake kettle. The bake kettle was used both as a bean pot and a bread baker. 
Since in the early 19th century there were no preset stone fire pits or grills, nor often even cleared campsites for that matter, the water boiling setup was generally of two kinds. In one scenario, the tops of two small crotched trees would be cut and pounded into the dirt on each side of the fire pit. Another stout pole would be cut and laid across, and from it would hang the tea pail. Another method involved cutting a small green branch, stripping the bark, and then hanging the tea pail over the fire onto one end of the resulting pole. The other end was thrust under a nearby log, with another placed in front for it to rest on. The frying pan would be laid directly on the fire. Later in the 1940s, the tea pail was modified and renamed a billy. As Robbins recounted, billies are covered tin pails so graduated into small, smaller, smallest that they form in repose what we might call a nest of billies. The largest is a veritable poobah amongst utensils. For a normal meal, it serves first as a tea kettle, next as a teapot, then as a kettle for heating the dishwasher, and finally as the lowly dishpan. The second billy is primarily for cooking porridge, though it may also be used for soaking beans or prunes or for mixing pancake batter. In case of need, it may perform all of the functions of the first billy. Both of these are always covered on the outside with a fine nap of black velvet carbon from the fire that can get over everything if not carefully handled. The third and smallest is never set on the fire. It is the regular soaking billy. As the innermost of the three billies in the nest when on the march, it can be kept reasonably clean. The bag for table service and clean kitchenware is always tied to the rough stuff sack. There are three tin places two tin cups, three forks, two knives, three dessert spoons, two tablespoons, one long-handled spoon, an egg beater, dish mop, dish towel, pan scourer, one bar of laundry soap, one long toasting fork and prongs, which are continually protruding through the bag and prodding the carrier on the trail. As mentioned previously, pork was one of the main staples on canoe trips. Sometimes as much as an entire side of meat was carried in its own separate canvas bag. The cook would hack off a number of slices of pork and first heat it up over the fire in a frying pan filled with water. After allowing it to boil for a few moments in order to remove the superfluous salt, the water would be poured off and the meat cooked to perfection. A gravy would be made by adding a bit of flour to the pork fat, and as Dixon reported, dinner would consist of a slice of pork, a spoonful or two of gravy, a couple of hard brown biscuits from the biscuit barrel, on top of a tin plate, tea in a tin cup. A neighboring log or spot of grass serves for a seat and knees for a table. In addition to salt pork, another common component of canoe trip eating was the creation of what Ernest Machado called the bean hole. Again, Dixon describes the process the best. A hole, a foot and a half in diameter and of equal length, has been dug close to the fire and filled with burning embers to dry it out and heat it. A tin pail, half filled with water, is got ready. The bag of white beans is brought forth. A few tea dishfuls are carefully picked over and emptied into the pail of water, which is now hung over the fire. Another pail of water is placed alongside it. Several square chunks of bacon are cut off, tossed into the dish of hot water, scraped and washed clean, and deposited in still another pail of water, which takes its place as number three over the fire. After 30 minutes, the bean pail is removed, a large iron fork is thrust down to the bottom, and the whole mass is stirred up. 
the lid is then replaced. The pail of boiling pork is also subjected to a careful scrutiny to ascertain that it is not boiling dry. A bake kettle, here too kept in the background, now makes its appearance and is scraped and thoroughly cleaned. The beans, which are by this time boiled soft, are emptied into it along with the grease from the pork we had for supper. A few slices of raw fat pork are laid on top and the lid is put on. The hole by the fire is emptied of its embers, a quantity of hot sand thrown in, and the bake kettle is put on top, the whole thing being covered with hot sand and ashes. The boiling pork is now also done to a turn, and it is taken from the fire, the swollen pieces held up in turn on the prongs of a fork, and cold water poured over them. It is set aside, ready for the table. The next morning, the shovel is again called into play to scrape the ashes off the top of the buried bake kettle. A hook, cut from an adjacent sapling, is inserted into each ear. The kettle is gently lifted out and set down. The dust is carefully wiped off the lid, one of the hooks inserted in the ring on the top, and the lid is lifted off, exposing the rich, steaming mess to our admiring gaze. Ernest Machado's description of this same cooking method for beans in 1903 is slightly different. He described the building of this same bean hole, but suggested that instead of leaving the beans to cook overnight using hot sand and ashes, a fire was built over the buried bean kettle and kept blazing all day. Another core food item were dried apples that were added to everything, as James Dixon explained. From the sack of dried apples, a few handfuls are taken out and carefully washed in the big tin dish, then squeezed between the hands and dropped onto the second pail. The dirty water is now thrown out of the dish and replaced by a few dipperfuls of clean hot water. After 30 minutes, the apple pail is removed. A large iron fork is thrust down to the bottom and the whole mass stirred up. Another dipper of hot water is added as the swelling fruit has absorbed most of the first supply. The lid is then replaced. A part of the top is now taken off a box of raisins from which a few handfuls are carefully picked and washed clean. Another inspection of the apple pail shows that the cooking has reached the proper stage. It is removed from the fire and the raisins are emptied in and carefully and evenly mixed with the apples. The pail is again replaced on the fire and allowed to simmer for a few moments. Finally, it is taken off. A few spoonfuls of sugar are added, the lid is replaced, and it is set to one side, ready for breakfast. Though common in some form to many cultures, bannock is a concoction of flour, baking soda, and salt. I first came across it while tripping as a camper and staff at Camp Wapameo in the late 60s, under the tutelage of a woman named Snooks Campbell. She was the head of tripping at that time and was the first to try to revitalize old tripping methods, one of which was the making of bannock. One great story of Bannock that I'd read involved Robert Balfour, the same Bob Balfour who accompanied the Machado party in 1903. He made Bannock for members of the first Ontario Forestry Field Practice Camp at the Shelter Hut on Big Trout in 1908. As one of the party recalled, One evening, as Balfour made Bannock for supper, we watched the process with great fascination. He went over to the bag of flour, made a hollow, and then casually poured a small container of water into the bag. He deftly folded the flour from around the edges into the liquid until the dough could be lifted out without leaving any moisture. The cooked bannock was quite edible when hot, but very tasteless and like hardtack when eaten cold. 
Bread making was usually done only when not moving on to the next lake on one's trip. Picked up during the lumbering days, an infusion of hops was added to prevent the growth of molds and bacteria. The hops were boiled in water, and the boiled liquid was added to a tin dish half full of flour. To it was added a yeast cake along with a handful of salt. This seems like a lot of salt compared to the teaspoon or so at best that is used today. All was mixed together with additional flour added to make sure it wasn't sticky. A couple of sticks were then laid across the top of the dish with a towel spread over it all, and the whole thing was set aside to rise overnight. The next morning, the cook would then knead the dough for a while, carefully smoothing it over and lightly dusting it with flour. The whole thing would then be laid to rest and again allowed to rise. Later in the morning, a clean towel was spread out over a large piece of birch bark, which had been laid on the ground as a bake board. A hunk of the dough was cut off, kneaded firmly on the board, and then placed in a well-greased bake kettle until it was half-filled. A pothole dug in the ground was filled with hot sand and a few coals thrown in. The bake kettle was then set on top of the sand and coals mixture, a thin coating of cold ashes laid on top, and the hole completely filled in with hot sand and coals, ensuring that no steam could escape. An hour later, the kettle was taken out and the lid removed. The bread was done if a knife or sliver of wood could be passed down through the center and found clean when it was pulled out. The loaf was then turned out onto the bark board. Apparently, according to Dixon, when made this way, the bread would keep for days without becoming hard or dry. Dixon also described in some detail their approach to dealing with bugs and mosquitoes and black flies in the tent in the 19th century. It basically involved adopting the indigenous method of smudging. A small fire was built using a few handfuls of wood chips and bark at the back of the tent. Once a sufficient blaze was established, damp moss and leaves were spread on top, which would immediately extinguish the flame. In its place would be a heavy, dense cloud of smoke. After a few moments, the tent door would be open and the accumulating thick clouds of smoke would roll out of the tent along with all of the mosquitoes or black flies that were in the tent. The smudge would then be reduced to a small amount of smoke, enough to keep any new bugs from entering the tent, but not so much that the humans in the tent couldn't breathe. Of course, by the 1940s, the in thing was to use this stuff called flytox. Now banned, it was a DDT-based hand spray insecticide and was used extensively in the 1940s and 50s. A typical advertisement from a July 1950 edition of the Eagle Gazette in Lancaster, Ohio, showed an idealized view of a family vacation, with the mother cooking outside a surplus army tent. I remember vividly that during the bug season, my mother would use it to detox our sleeping cabins at the cottage. I don't want to imagine how much DDT is built up in my bones as a result of that. Before I wrap up this episode, it's important to spend a few moments talking about what happened to the interior in the 1950s and 60s. For decades, anyone who wanted to could rent a plane and a pilot in Huntsville or Pembroke and fly to any Algonquin lake and fish. To manage the crowds and reduce overfishing, in 1943, fly-in access was limited to 22 lakes. This didn't seem to make much of a difference as in 1950, for example, a thousand float planes deposited 1,137 anglers on interior lakes. In addition, some of these commercial operators were caching boats and equipment in the interior for use by their customers. 
Though this practice was banned in 1949, it wasn't enforced, so not much changed. In 1954, flyable lakes were dramatically limited to just six, including Smoke Lake, Rain Lake, Brent on Cedar Lake, Acre on Grand Lake, Lake Lavier, and Spruill Bay on Lake Opiongo. Traffic and campground use along Highway 60 also grew dramatically, such that park staff were unable to provide adequate attention to what had once been their primary roles, that of the upkeep of portages and landing docks, campsite inspection and maintenance, and fire safety efforts in the interior. To no one's surprise, this lack of direct care meant seriously deteriorated campsites and portages, with an overwhelming number of tin cans, glass bottles strewn about. Sometimes the mess was collected in dumps behind the campsites, and sometimes not. On some popular lakes and campsites, the sanitation situation was horrific. Many would complain of the ground back of some campsites being blanketed with white toilet paper. This was especially true on the heavily used Maine Canoe Lake to Cedar Lake route. A 1963 survey by park staff indicated that the biggest complaint by interior canoe trippers was the amount of garbage on the campsites and on the canoe trails. In 1969, an effort was made to try to deal with this problem. Thirty men were assigned in the spring to little effect. That fall, the effort was tried again, and this time 10,000 bushels, or 352,390 liters of trash, were hauled out by boat, truck, and aircraft. Yellow garbage bags were issued to canoe trippers with the request that they pack out their cans, bottles, and non-burnable garbage. Though marked with their permit number so as to potentially track down recalcitrant trippers, it wasn't enough. By 1965, there were 32,000 interior canoe tripping visitors a season, and by 1976, that number reached 65,000. To solve the overuse problem in 1976, a quota system for campsite use was introduced, and camping was limited to specific sites on every lake. Those at portage entry and egress locations were shut down, and in 1978 a total ban on glass bottles and tins was initiated. In 1968, float plane landing was restricted to smoke in Kioshkawi lakes, and a few years later motorboats were restricted to only a few lakes. A plan was put in place to enable additional access points around the park and the creation of additional parks nearby helped reduce some of the land use pressure. As we all know today, all of that for the most part worked, and though interior camping reservations on long weekends and for certain popular areas can be a challenge, there is for the most part enough for everyone who wants to have an Algonquin wilderness experience, just like they did in the early 19th century. I hope you've enjoyed this adventure down memory lane of what canoe tripping was like in Algonquin Park in the early days. As I mentioned previously, on my YouTube channel I've posted a music video that includes all of the Machado Trip pictures for your viewing pleasure. There's also a slideshow version on AlgonquinParkHeritage.com. In my next episode, we'll take a look at another very interesting topic, that of logging in the park. Mm -hmm.